You guys awake this morning? You ready to spend time in the Word? It's been a great morning. I'm telling you, I, uh, my name is Brandon Gendon. I am the, as you may have figured out already, the guest speaker uh, for this morning. It's been an honor to, to get to know some of you and spend the last couple of days with some of the leaders here at River Rock. And, and I'm telling you, you are a great bunch of folks. It's, um, it's just been a fantastic time. And so I'm looking forward to this morning um, spending some time in the Word and really looking at Jesus' calling to us in the church to go into the world and make disciples. And we're going we're gonna to look at that today. But what I want to do before we get started, I, <clears throat> I, am, I believe in prayer. And that prayer is important. And so before I step into the Word, I know we've already prayed a few times, but I just want to stop all of us, bow our heads, and just take a moment, and that we would prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord. So can we do that? Let's just take a moment. Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray again. Lord Jesus, we just come to you. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to to move, to work in our hearts. Lord, that I would um, get out of your way. Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher today. Lord, that uh, the words I would speak would be exactly what you want. Nothing more, nothing less. And Lord, that each person that's here today would be open to what you would have to say to them. That we would focus our hearts, our minds, our whole soul onto you and what you have for us. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, my name is Brandon. I am the senior pastor of a new church plant in Tomball, Texas, over in Northwest Houston. But originally, I am from the Pacific Northwest from the um, heathenistic place of the world, I'm telling you. Uh, it's far from the Bible Belt up there. And, uh, but I love the Pacific Northwest. And when I came to Houston, um, it's so great because everybody uh, here in Texas has been very warm and, and greeting to our family. And when they found out that I was from the Northwest, they knew, and, and, and in fact, literally my home where I lived sat at the, at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And so when I moved to Texas, it was like, uh, there's nothing, I mean, this is like being a missionary. There's nothing here like there. But it was so great, because when I got here, people would tell me, oh, we, it's okay, we, we do. We have mountains here in Texas. We do, we really do. If you go out to the hill country, we have mountains. And so I drove out there. And I thought, now wait a minute, if my 13-year-old son can throw a rock over the top of it, it's not a mountain. I'm used to mountains. And so it's been a big change, but it's been great. It's been wonderful. And, and my family has, um, has transitioned here, and, and we love Texas, and it's been a lot of fun. But what's interesting is everywhere that I get the opportunity to go, the Lord has allowed me in 20 years of ministry to be able to preach all over the world. I've got to be in many different countries and work with a lot of different leaders and preach in different churches. And and I'm telling you, no matter if you're talking with leaders in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, or you're talking to leaders in Singapore, I'm sending a team there tomorrow, or whether you're in Mexico, it does not matter. Wherever I go globally, there is a consistent conversation. I believe the Holy Spirit is doing something very special right now, in our midst and even and globally. Because the conversation is the same. Regardless of the culture that I'm in, the conversation I have with pastors and churches is this. We know God's called us to make disciples, but we don't know how. 
We don't know what that looks like. I can't tell you how many churches I've been in around the world that have said we're a mile wide and an inch deep. We have converts, but we don't have disciples. And our churches are struggling. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but here in the United States, church in America is struggling. Christians are losing influence every day. All you have to do is turn on the news, right, and see it. And so for me, the passion that I have is that if we would just be who Jesus calls us to be, if we would follow what his word actually says to do, that we can really, truly, we pray for it, that we can see revival in our country. A pastor told me one time, he said, you know, we need to just give up on America and send everything we can to the rest of the world because that's where God's moving. I'm telling you, it's a miracle he still has teeth in his head because I about lost it. Give up on our own neighbors, our own country. That's not even possible, is it? Do we believe that God is real and God can move and move in our own neighborhoods, our own schools, our own churches? Do we believe that today? I believe it's true. That God can move and he will move. But we have to get back to what he says and what his methodology is and what his message, the gospel message, and we need to bring those things together and live it out. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about me. Kind of set this whole thing up. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up a hunter and outdoorsman, and I played football and, and was a track athlete and had the opportunity to go on to college and compete as, an, as a collegiate athlete. And when I was in, in college, our, our coaches, my, my college coaches, well, most of them were Christian guys. They, they absolutely demanded that if you played on that football team, you sat in the front two rows of any class. So all the college classes, if you were on the football team, you sat in the front two rows. And let me tell you, they knew whether or not you were sitting there or not. It was a great policy that they had. But even stronger than that was is if you wore anything that represented the school or the football team, you had better, you better represent it well. So if you were going to put that jersey on and you were going to wear anything of any of our colors, school colors out in the community, you had better represent it well. And we believed in that, and we, we, we were committed to that, that we behaved in such a way that up, upheld the name on the jersey. And it's been an honor for me now, as, as, as I got to be a college athlete, my daughter, my oldest, who's a senior, she's going to go be a college athlete. And I've been able to use that analogy to talk to her about being a person of character, being a person that upholds a name and carries a name out in the community and is a, is a witness, if you will, for your program. See, God calls us to be a representative of his out in the community, doesn't he? He calls us to go into the world, that we represent him everywhere that we go. That we put a jersey on and that we represent him. That we're told that the purpose of the church is to go into the world and make disciples, isn't it? And so this question that I want to ask us today and look at it is what is the purpose of the church? What is winning in the church? See, when I played college football, we knew exactly what winning was. Told us at the end of the day, I don't care how hard we played or what we did, but at the end of the day, we better have more points than the opponent. We knew what winning was. If you play any sport, you play any game, the first question typically is how do I win? What do I have to do to win? Tell me the rules because I want to win. If you're in my family, I'm telling you, you can be playing any game at all. And with my four kids and my wife, we're a competitive family. Both of my daughters, especially, like, what do, what do I got to do to win? Because I'm beating you. It's a lot of fun. 
The church, though, as I grew up and I gave my life to Christ when I was in college, and I came into the church, and I walked in it from the outside. I did not grow up in the church, and I came in, and I saw this group of people. See, I understand sports way better than I understood the church. And I looked at it, and I thought, what in the world's going on? Isn't this supposed to be a team? People would change churches. No one seemed to be on the same page. I didn't know what the win was. What, what, what's success? Is it just coming to church on Sunday? I, I don't understand this. And so as I went into ministry and I poured into the Word of God, I, more and more it stood out between what we did on Sunday mornings and what the church was, was very different than what we see in the Scriptures. And it continued to come to my mind is, what is the purpose of the church? What is winning? And the church has seemed to globally change the definition or completely lost the definition of what the win is. And what's amazing to me is the king, the head coach, Jesus Christ, is very clear about what the win is. He doesn't hide us from it at all. There's no mystery. It's not like some, some game where there's all these complex, incredible rules that we can't ever figure out. No, he's very clear. He demonstrates it with his life, the entire gospel's lay out very clearly what the win is. And then he tells us very clearly, go into the world and make disciples. That's what I want you to do. How do we glorify God? How do we bring glory to him? How do we honor the king that we serve? What do we do? We go into the world and make disciples. If you were playing a sport, some of you may have played sports, or you, or you had a teacher, or you had a coach, you had a, a principal that asked you to do something. Here's what I want you to do. I had this great coach in college. The guy was just an incredible man. I'm telling you, some of us guys, we, we'd run through a wall for that guy. We would do anything he would ask us to do. I mean, how much greater is Jesus than a high school or a college football coach? He comes to us and he gives us a very clear command. Go into the world and make disciples. We're given one purpose, folks. To go do it. And his word lays it out exactly how we should do it. And not only how we should do it, but he calls us and tells us exactly what it looks like and what we should make to make a disciple. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. I know many of you know this verse. But I believe that the definition of a disciple, what the win is, is in the invitation. He gives it to us right there. He says, this is what I want you to make. This is what it is. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. The definition of a disciple, what we're shooting for, what the win is, is right in the invitation. It's right in front of us. Here's what it is. A disciple is one who is following Jesus Christ. It's someone that's following. So it's really simple. I can ask you, you can ask your friend, I can look at the people in our church and I can ask this question, are you following Jesus with your life? See, we've adopted this mindset. This is where we change the rules of the win. Is that Christianity is all about me believing a, a list of, of intellectual facts. Jesus is God. He died for my sins. He paid it on the cross. He rose from the dead. Those things are true. And it says that we should believe those, that we do believe those to, to receive God's grace. But anytime Jesus gives us a declarative statement, he asks us to do something about it. And he tells them over and over and over to follow me, to take up your cross and follow me, to set down your old life and to follow. 
So when Jesus, when he calls his men, he doesn't call them initially to an intellectual list of facts. He just calls his disciples and says, hey, come follow me. So the definition for us in the church is, starts right there. It's just to look and, and for us to evaluate in our own lives, am I following Jesus Christ with my life? Or am I just attending church? See, nowhere in Scripture does it tell you to go attend church. It says do not forsake the gathering of believers, but you're not a called to just attend a service. Following Jesus is so much more than that, isn't it? It's a life. It's who you are. Because he's the king. And I follow him. Because he died for me. He paid the price for me. He gave up everything for me. And when we study and look at the life of Christ, that's what I didn't understand. As a new Christian, I came into the church and I saw people sitting and getting up and going and leaving. And I'm going, do you not understand? Am I missing something? The king of the universe gave up everything for me and he asked me to follow. Shouldn't my life reflect that? That's what being a disciple is all about. Well, as I follow Jesus Christ and as I follow him, I'm telling you, you're going to be changed. He changes you. He changes your priorities. He changes what you care about. He changes how we parent. He changes how we view people that aren't so lovely. He begins to change and work in our hearts as we're following him. So we can look. We can look in the church and go, are we following him? Are we being changed by him? And if I'm being changed by him and I'm following, then I'm absolutely going to care about his mission. What's his mission? To go make fishers of men. To reach the world. To go into the world and make disciples. That's what he's called us to do. See, the apostles understood that. The early church understood that. They knew, hey, take my life. You can kill me. You can do whatever you want. I saw what I saw and I know who Jesus is. He's the king of kings. There's no way I'll reject him. My life is dedicated to his mission. Imagine if the church in America understood that, believed that, and lived that way. What impact would that have in our schools, in our politics, in the government, in our neighborhoods, if the church understood and accepted and followed and lived out what Jesus calls us to do and be, would that change things? Would it? Can I get an amen? So I want us to think about that for a minute. Because for too long, we've made assumptions in the church and we've assumed things. And we've lost things and we've changed definitions. I thought, well, I, I went to church today. I can check that box. I'm good. If I'm really spiritual. Maybe I read my Bible a little bit. I, I'm good. See, Jesus calls us to so much more than that. He calls us to follow him and to be changed into the likeness of him. And we cannot do that outside of the context of relationship. His methodology that he gives us in Scripture. See, the church has changed the definition of winning. There's four things that we see in Scripture I want to give to you. There's four things that we see that have to be present in our lives in order for us to be a disciple and make a disciple. 
It has to be there. I don't have time this morning to pull all of these all apart and go into them. We spent a lot of time with some of the leaders yesterday, and, and I, I know your pastor, and he's going to teach on these things. And, and so, but I, I want to list them of what they are. There's four things. The first thing that we have to have is we have to have a relational environment. See, Jesus did not make a disciple outside of the context of relationship. The early church did not make disciples outside of the context of relationship. Relationship is the glue that holds the gospel together. Relationship is the, is the glue where, where, that holds this environment together. And for too long in the church, we've tried to make disciples without relationship. That does not work, according to the Scriptures that there has to be an environment where relationship happens, where we can sit and look eye to eye. I'm telling you, you cannot make a disciple through Facebook, through social media. It doesn't work that way. I have to be able to look you in your eye and you look me in the eye and us do life together, just as Jesus did with his disciples. See, I believe that Jesus is the greatest discipler that ever walked the face of the planet. Do you believe that that's true? If he's the greatest discipler that's ever walked the face of the planet and he told you to go make disciples, shouldn't we copy the way he made disciples? Does he deserve and have earned that right as Lord and King? See, the issue in the church is we have divorced the message of Jesus Christ from the method of Jesus Christ and we've expected to get his results. We want his results in our life. That doesn't work that way. Jesus not only preached and gave the gospel, the message of the kingdom, he gave the methodology in which to live it out. Jesus embodied the gospel. He was the gospel and is the gospel. So for us to be able to make a disciple, we have to understand that we have to have relationship. Someone has to be intentional. It's not going to happen by accident. Disciple making has to be intentional in your life. You know, I I know this in parenting my four kids. If I'm just hoping that they follow Jesus and it's going to happen by accident, that's taken a lot to chance, isn't it? But I have to be intentional with them every day. Last night, my 17-year-old, she went on a date with a boy and came home, called me on the phone. It was hilarious. I got to process it with her. I said, how'd it go? She goes, eh, And I hear my wife in the background, she goes, that poor boy, I hear her say that, I laugh. (laughs) I said, it didn't go so well. She goes, dad, we went and saw a movie and he was scared in the movie. I go, well, how'd you know he was scared? She goes, he covered his eyes. (laughs) She goes, dad, I can't be with a guy that's scared at a scary movie. (laughs) I said, okay. She goes, then it got worse. I said, what happened? She goes, we went and ate at IHOP. I said, okay. She goes, he didn't eat very much, and I ate more than he did. <laughs> she goes, he's a nice boy, but this ain't going to work. <laughs> I was like, yes, I've discipled her well. <laughs> Big, strong guy, brave guy, eats a lot, love it. That's what we're looking for. But we were able to have this awesome conversation, her and I, even more about honoring the Lord and about what God's doing in her life and how God brings people into her life. And we had this very intentional conversation. See, making a disciple doesn't happen by accident. It requires us to be intentional. 
My hope for all of you is whether you know how to make a disciple or not, that you would commit to these four things and say, you know what? I have to be more relational. I've got to engage in this church relationally. I need people around me. I have to be intentional with my life. I have to be committed that there is a process where disciples are made. If I'm not being a disciple, I've got to learn how. But there's a process that reproduces. We're all here because Jesus instituted a reproducible process in his church. That's why we're here today, because the church continues on in spite of the church. That's the great thing about the Holy Spirit. He's going to accomplish the mission of the king, and he's going to get it done whether we participate or not. God's really that good, isn't he? It's one of the scariest things I've ever read. It was a quote in a book. And it was a father talking to a son, and his, his advice was this. He said, son, he said, my prayer for you is that God will never have to go find somebody else to do what he asked you to do. See, that's my hope for you in this church, is that God doesn't have to go find somebody else to reach that neighbor that lives next door to you. That God doesn't have to go find some other church to disciple those people because this church refuses to participate in his mission. Well, I'm telling you, like many other churches refuse to do, and I'm embarrassed to admit that. Church is struggling, folks. Somebody has to step up and do it. Somebody has to commit to making disciples. Stop just worrying about converts and stop just putting on a show entertaining people. And the reason we have to do this is because it's biblical. There's a biblical foundation behind it. It was interesting when we were first planning the church, I sat, had a bunch of the kind of college age, who are part of our church, some college age and high school youth, and I had them sit down and I, I said, and about a third of the group were not believers. They were friends of kids in our church. And I had them sit down and I asked them a question. I said, if we built a youth ministry, a young adult ministry, and we're going to build it from the ground up, I said, what do you want in it? What do you want it to look like? Two of the kids have never been in church. This is what they said, both of them. It was a boy and a girl. They said, we need somebody that will sit with us and mentor us. I said, we don't care what else you do, but we need somebody that we can ask questions. And this one girl broke my heart. She said, because my parents, they, 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 we've been around the church, but it doesn't work for them. It isn't working. I don't know what to do. I have questions. And all the kids are nodding their head, yes. Will somebody sit with us in a group so we can ask questions and mentors and, and help us because it's really, really hard in the school. And I don't know what to do. They don't care about the songs we sing and the programs we put on and whether or not we'll put a ping pong ball on a paddle and run across the room or not. They want to know how in the world do I deal with the things I'm dealing with with my peer groups. So we have to understand that the biblical methodology of making disciples requires us to be in relationship. And the younger generation that's coming up right now is screaming it at the church. And we're plugging our ears and not listening. 
And I believe the Holy Spirit is screaming at the church and saying, will you get back to my methodology of making a disciple? And if you do that, I'll bless you. See, what's happened in the church is the church has made being a disciple about what you know rather than being known. It's about what you know rather than being known smart you are. We live in a time right now with our cell phones and with social media and with internet and with all the things and books and there is more education available right now at our fingertips in the history of the church. There's more curriculum, there's more stuff out there, there's more commentary, there's more scholarship, there's more stuff. We can go find Bibles that are direct translations of the Greek. We can study it and study it and study it, yet the church is more illiterate today than it's ever been in the history of the church. So let's just educate more. Let's just keep doing what we're doing, but let's just do it harder. That's the definition of insanity, isn't it? We just keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? Maybe we're doing something wrong. Think about the things, the volumes of knowledge Jesus could have taught to the twelve. He could have taught advanced in quantum physics. He could have taught how in the world he put the world together. He could have taught vast volumes of knowledge to the disciples. It's not what he did. Education's good. We need to learn. We need to study. I'm not saying don't do that. Jesus did teach. He taught the Word of God. But what we see in the preponderance of his life is that he cared about those guys being known by him him knowing them rather than what they know. Because that's what changed their life. That's what changed their hearts. That's what helped them understand the heart of the king. That's what helped them understand how to live in the kingdom. And we see that's what the early church continued to pass on. The church has made being a disciple about what you know rather than being known. Relationship is critical. It starts from the very beginning when we look in the Word of God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We went over this with the leadership. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 is the first crisis in Scripture. The first crisis in Scripture is not the fall of man. That's the second crisis. The first crisis in Scripture is that man is alone. God says it is good. It is good as he's creating. It is good. It is good. He looks at Adam and he says, it is not good that you are alone. When we look at that passage, we have to understand this. Adam is not alone. Well, is God crazy? I mean, what do you mean? Adam's walking in perfect relationship with God. Sin has not entered the world. But God looked at Adam because God knows he put a part of himself in Adam. That that, that Adam is made in God's image and part of God's image. God is a triune God. He's a relational God. And Adam can't live in what, in what God intended for him without Eve. He knows we need relationship. And we know that that's true because read the rest of the Old Testament. Every single problem that occurs in the Old Testament is because of broken relationship with God and broken relationship with each other. The Jews continue to screw it up over and over and over, don't they? That's the story of the Jewish nation. The story of the Jewish nation is taking a set of rules and putting them in place of their relationship with God. 
why when Jesus comes and he looks at the people, he weeps. He says that he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps. He says, oh, 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 Israel, I wish to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. Does that sound relational or educational? It broke Jesus' heart to see how far his people were from God. He wished to gather them and be in relationship with them. I mean, think about it. Why would Jesus spend three and a half years with guys that about half irritated him all the time? Because he was expressing the heart of God for you and I. He was expressing the heart of God for his people. That it's not good for man to be alone. And how come in the church, the number one complaint among pastors and people in the church, the number one social issue in America is loneliness? How can we claim to be a Christian nation, yet the number one problem is loneliness? That's, that's like an oxymoron. Christians should be the least lonely people in the world. You have the church, a body to belong to, people that should know you and be known. People that when, I, when, when I'm not there, they miss that I'm there. When I am there, they're glad to see me and they hug me, regardless if I'm in a good boon or not. We're called to be the church. See, the Pharisees tried to trick, trick Jesus. They came to him and they asked him the question. They said, what's the greatest commandment, Lord? They thought they'd set a trap for him. What does Jesus tell him in Matthew 22, verse 36? One of them, a lawyer, asked a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on those. How many commandments did they ask for? One. How many does Jesus give? Two. Why? He didn't ask for two. Because God doesn't separate those two things. In fact, he says, if you don't love your brother, you're a liar. Truth isn't in you. That those two things are intimately woven together. In fact, Jesus would say, hey, if you're not loving your neighbor, then you don't love me. If you want to demonstrate that you love me, then you need to love your neighbor. How can we be lonely and be loving? Those two things don't work. We have to be in relationship. I want you to see a verse that changed my life. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Verses 8 through 10. This is Paul writing, so I thought, well, maybe this is just a Jesus concept, this relationship thing, and we don't see it any further, and then you go study the rest of the scriptures. And it's consistent all the way to the end. Look at what Paul says. He says, oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments. You Bible note-taking underliner people, you underline that. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. 
You should love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute. Every other, any other commandment is summed up in that one word, love your neighbor as yourself. I would have expected him to say is to love God. He says, no, love your neighbor. Wait a minute. How do the other commandments, a commandment like do not take the Lord's name in vain, summed up in loving your neighbor, how does that work? Does Paul, has he lost his mind? Well, then you go and study it. You understand, what does it mean when the Lord says, do not take his name in vain? See, in the church, we turn that into a checklist thing and says, we say, don't swear, don't curse. True, we shouldn't do that. That's not the intent of that commandment. What the Lord is saying is this, do not take upon my name. Do not call yourself belonging to me. Do not call yourself a Christian if you're going to misuse it. Let's put it in our American terms. Here's what the Lord's saying. Don't put on my jersey if you're going to drag it through the mud. Don't put it on because you're going to take my name in vain. Here's what the Lord's saying to us. If you're going to mistreat your brother, don't call yourself belonging to me because that means you're taking my name through the mud. That's what Paul's telling us. That's what the Lord calls us to. Is if we're going to put on his jersey, we're going to wear his shirt, Christian right across the front of it, then we have to understand what that means when we go out into the world. That we're called to represent him. That we're on his team. And we're called to go. And we're given a mission to go and make disciples. And we wear that jersey proud everywhere that we go. And we're supposed to be a light in the community. And when people look at us, they go, you're different. You're not alone. You're not struggling. I need to know and understand why you're different. How come your jersey's different? Well, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you what Jesus has done. Let me invite you to be a part of it. See, when we live that way, when we take Jesus' methodology and we live it out and we apply it and we love each other and we create a culture and a church that says, you know what, we're committed. We're committed. God calls us to live in covenant relationship with him and covenant relationship with each other. To not be like the rest of the world, that every time I get offended and my toes are stepped on, then I take my ball and go home. You made me mad, I quit. I'm telling you, Christians are cowards. We're called to fight and to stand and to be warriors and to storm the gates of hell and to forgive each other and to love each other and to create a culture of unity so that when the lost world looks, they can go, wow, I want to be a part of that. My life's a mess. And the stories that I've heard from this church are incredible. You're being different. Keep doing it. Keep pursuing Jesus. Making disciples is scary. I tell churches all the time, I say, you sure you want to do it? Is this not easy? But Jesus didn't call us to do something easy, did he? Being a follower of Christ and putting on that jersey is one of the most difficult, wonderful, awesome, scary, terrifying, fantastic things you'll ever do this side of heaven. Well, Jesus promises us in Matthew 16 that if we do it, 
will storm the gates of hell. That we'll be a church that storms the gates of hell and we'll be his church. We'll have his blessing. That's my prayer for all of you. That, we, that you live that out here, that you commit to it. And you may go, I have no idea how, what that looks like. Okay, that's all right. That doesn't keep you from committing to it. You just got more to learn. In our church, we have a bunch of folks that have never done this before, that are learning for the first time. I was telling the group yesterday, I was getting texts all day long from the guys in my men's group, praying for all of you, and how's it going, and, and my phone just blew up all day yesterday, and it was, it was great. They were sending me pictures last night, a bunch of them all hanging out together. I thought, that's the way church is supposed to be. That even though I'm not there, they're all hanging out, taking care of each other, and, and, and being the church. That we know we're not called to go to church, we're called to be the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. That's my prayer for each of you. So this morning, I don't know where you're at. What I want to do is I want to take a moment and allow you to spend a moment with the Lord. Pastor Charlie's going to come up here in a minute and pray over you. And, and I just want to give you a moment, though, to spend with the Lord. We do this in our church every week. At the end of service, we take a moment, we call it directed prayer. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads. God's working in your heart right now. What's he telling you? What's he calling you to? What's he drawing you to this morning? That you take a moment and just spend with him. Spend a moment in prayer. continue to pray. Maybe there's a person that God's put on your heart. You see their face, you know their name, and maybe they're far from God. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. You see that person's face, you know their name. God's put them on your heart to pray for them. But to not just pray for them, to ask the Lord, God, how do you want to use me to be your hands and feet to that person. That you would pray for them and you'd ask God, God, how could you use me to go after them? Take a moment and pray for that person. Lord, we come to you this morning. God, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us a picture in your scripture of what discipling looks like. Thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet. Thank you that your word is a foundation. It's a plumb line, God, that we can build our lives. Thank you, Lord, for each person that's here. God, that you're working in each person's life. You promised to do that. Thank you, Holy Spirit. God, we, we submit ourselves to you, you King Jesus.
We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.